I mean, I hate to push everybody to sit down and get going, but uh, I just felt like we had to read these chapters. I'm assuming that you have not read chapters 13 and 14 of Judges. So, and I just felt these are kind of well-known chapters. I wanted to read them things that you should be familiar with. So it's just maybe probably won't get done Just by way of review, though, before we read, last week we looked at Jephthah and looked at how that he, uh, in some ways, represented or, or looked like Christ, illustrated Christ. He, because of his birth, is rejected by his brethren, but later on he becomes their savior. But in the end, he fails. As all these judges do in one way or another, they, uh, they're, they're just reminding us how much we need Christ. Man cannot do what only Christ could do. And so judges, as they look at bad leadership, we've seen how the women seem to get the worst of it. But in his case, he makes his rash vow to sacrifice whatever comes out of his door to meet him. <clears throat> and it was his daughter. And so um, she ends up being sacrificed uh, for his bad decision. And then we saw how differently... God, the godly women of the Old Testament viewed having children than the ungodly today. Uh, and of course, they, they knew that there was a promise for a man-child to be born who was going to be their redeemer. That was part of their uh, desire to have uh, a son for their husbands and so forth. That, that perhaps they'd be the one who would uh, be like Mary ended up being. But of course, we know that that was going to come to a virgin, at least we know now. But it's just so different. It, you know, it's just Reading or learning this week that uh, it, in Colorado and Maryland they are trying to pass laws not only for there to be unqualified abortion right up to the end of the uh, pregnancy, but even after the baby is born. Well, didn't realize it was a Down syndrome baby that we got. We missed that. Okay, just shove it over to the side. Let it you know be until it quits crying and then. Out it goes, and that does literally the wording where uh, it can be happen after uh, the baby is born, and so uh, it's just what happens in a secular society that has no concept of God and judgment, and uh, in, in some ways, it's just like the Book of Judges where people are doing whatever they want to do. So uh, those are some of the things we looked at last week. Uh, before we get into chapter thirteen, we are reminded uh, in the end of chapter twelve, three lesser judges. If then, Elon and Abdon, and uh, it's just interesting that, that not much is said about them. Uh, one had uh, 30 daughters, and he gave, uh, he brought in people from outside of his clan to be their husbands, and then he had 30 sons whom he uh, found wives for them outside of this clan. That That's what he was known for. I mean, he's not sure what kind of deep spiritual lessons are all there, but it's interesting that, that that's what he's known for. The, the next one, Elon, just that he judged for 10 years and he died, Abdon, what he was known for is that he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys and he judged Israel for 8 years. That's all I've known about him. Isn't it? And so you think, well, maybe one day find out, you know, what, what don't we read about here? But what it reminds us is that 
uh, this is all about God and what He's doing. And these people are raised up for their purpose in their generation. They pass from the scene much like us. It's not that we have to be well-known. We don't all have to be Samson's or Gideon's. We just have to do our part. And these men do their part. We don't know any more about them at this point. But we know that if they were faithful and they were believers, that, that God took care of them. And it's just a reminder that this is a story of what God is doing with man, not about, not merely about Israel's history, uh, not merely about these men, it's about God. And uh, it helps us avoid the foolish mistake of thinking, uh, you know, why things are happening and trying to, that we have to have all the answers. We don't, because the Lord is doing, he's got seven and a half billion people he's uh, working with through whatever he wants to do in this world. We are part of that. We're gladly part of that. We want to do what we can for the Lord. We know that the reward comes later. So another thing, though, that that passage does at the end of chapter 12 is to remind us of, of what we taught, this constant refrain that we hear or read in the Old Testament, that so-and-so lived and he died. That's what the point we made with all the, the um, genealogies in the Old Testament. They, they can be tedious. Maybe some people think they're boring. But it reminds us that the Lord is keeping track. These people live, they die, the Lord worked through them, but they died. And yet, when we get to the New Testament, we don't read that anymore. Jesus breaks the cycle of death. Now, it's not that we, we know, of course, that the Old Testament or the New Testament saints died. But it's just a, a marked difference it's about life, it's about what we have in Jesus Christ and the power of Death has been broken. So yes, we die, but it's just a much more positive uh, spin on it because of the work of Christ. All of a sudden, here we have Jesus making people alive from the dead. Um, Hebrews 7.23 The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, you had many priests, not at one time, if he passed from father to the son, because people kept dying, right? But he holds his priesthood permanently, of course, he's talking about Jesus, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. <laughs> Excuse me. So it is, as we are joined to the one eternal one, we uh, know that we have eternal life. And that, of course, is the theme of the uh, New Testament. <coughs> okay, let's uh, let's stand. We like to do and read God's Word. and We'll do it here for chapter 13. And we'll read through this and then we'll get as far as we can. <coughs> And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. What we don't read here from now on is that they repented and uh, God, they, they cried out to God to help them for the sin deliverance. Don't read that anymore because you see a progression here in Judges of things just getting worse. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Benoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, 
Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. The razor shall come upon his head, and the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines, that he shall begin to, that the power of the Philistines will, will continue for another forty years or so. Verse 6. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, but eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a dead right to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us so that we, what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, the angel of God came again to the woman and, woman and she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? What is sufficient? The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I have said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink it, wine or strong drink, nor, or eat any unclean thing, for this is while she's pregnant. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. But Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true we may honor you? The angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. And the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at your hand, or show us all these things, or now announce to us such things as these. And the woman bore his son and called his name Samson. The young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him, stir him in the head and stand between Zora and Eshbaal. One thing to keep in mind is that Samson is from Dan, the tribe of Dan initially uh, was in the center of Israel at that time, but some of them later migrated up north, and we'll get into that uh, actually uh, once we get done with Samson, because that plays a part of the book of Judges as well. <clears throat> but the reason I wanted to read that was because it's, it's, it's a very mysterious portion of scripture that the commentators you know, don't necessarily all agree or 
you know, admit that there's just a lot of things going on there that we really don't know why. Uh, the, the way the Lord presents himself and, and the, the, the interaction between uh, the three of them is just very interesting. But there are some things that I think are pretty obvious that we can deal with. As we read of Samson's birth, there are some things that stand out. First of all, it sounds a lot like uh, the account of the angel coming to Mary. And one of the things we see here is that Samson typifies the Lord Jesus Christ in some ways, especially in his birth. And uh, and it, so it, it, it continues that theme of, of man just coming short of being uh, what they need to be, the, the need of a Savior to come. So here... The angel comes to uh, the wife of Noah. Interesting that she is never named. Yet she seems to be the more level-headed one. The one that the angel keeps coming to. But Noah is named. And he's the one that the angel almost seems to be reluctant to uh, show himself to and, and, and talk to him. And so it's just a very odd thing. Except maybe that, that the whole account of Samson is one of mysteries and riddles and People trying to get information and having a difficult time to get it. So it's just kind of an interesting uh, whole account. <clears throat> like the Lord, there's much about his situation around his birth. Uh, there's a lot uh, going on there. But then there's a period of silence until he's a young man. Then all of a sudden we see his ministry. So that's a lot like the account of Jesus Christ as well. Down in <clears throat> chapter 24. The woman bore a son, called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, which is much, remember after uh, the account of Jesus at the temple, uh, then if we read something much like that, he grew in uh, favor with God and man, good wisdom, and then that's it until he appears on the scene to be baptized, right, to get his ministry. <clears throat> so both Jephthah and Samson, there seems to be an obvious connection with Jesus, at least as far as illustration, but just like Moses was an insufficient mediator and lawgiver, so these men are insufficient judges and saviors. Um, again, there's what uh, this is one of many women generally barren to begin with that miraculously bear a son, which I think is kind of a little bit of a motif throughout the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus. In other words, you've got uh, think about it. Sarah was barren. She has a miraculous child, Isaac. Uh, here you have uh, the wife of Noah. Uh, there's Hannah, who is barren, and then uh, the Lord allows her to conceive. Not necessarily miraculous, other than the fact that the Lord was the one who was directing when she was going to conceive. But of course, that's true of all of us, right? But <clears throat> you have this idea of being barren until the Lord sends the promised child. And, and of course, they, they could have been virgins, but they're only one virgin because Jesus Christ is uniquely God and human. Uh, and so uh, there could only be one Mary in that sense. But these women typify that. They kind of show, show that, that uh, so this is kind of how it's going to happen. There's going to be a promised child who's going to be born miraculously. And so you see this again in the Old Testament. Now, it says he was going to be a Nazarite. Now, I don't know, hopefully everybody is familiar with the, the Nazarite vow. It was, uh, under the law, a man could voluntarily take a Nazarite vow where he would be dedicated to the Lord, but it was usually a, a temporary thing for, for a purpose. 
during that time he was not to cut his hair and he was not to drink any alcohol uh, while that death right now was in place. The difference here, of course, is that God says, uh, you, Samson's going to be a Nazarite and live as a Nazarite for his entire life. Of course, what we, what we find with uh, Samson is that he pretty much breaks all the things he was supposed to do uh, in one way or another. Uh, and, and he doesn't keep the vow very well. But that's what a Nazarite is, more or less in case you were hadn't really ever heard of that. Um, in verse 6, it says that he shall begin to save Israel from the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines were uh, had been in the land the whole time Israel invaded the land, but the, the, there is um, people who uh, deal with uh, the history of this time said that the Philistines at uh, right about this time uh, had a large amount of them had migrated into the land, uh, and so this is, all of a sudden the Philistine numbers became much greater than they were initially, and this is why Israel now all of a sudden that they became the biggest enemy of Israel at this time, and so that would the work of what we read here in uh, the Old Testament, and so they begin to be the primary thorn in Israel's side up until the time really of David, uh, Sam, Samuel with Saul begin to fight against. Philistines, but remember, it really was David who comes along as a boy and kills Goliath, where they really begin to make any headway, and it wasn't until David's reign where they actually subdued the Philistines from what they were before that. And so, um, <clears throat> what we find here with the Philistines, too, is that their oppression isn't so much militarily, although that was the case to some degree, they had learned to smelt uh, iron and make, you know, steel and stuff like that. And, and so they guarded that very carefully, would not let uh, Israel, the Israelites learn to do that so that they could have better weapons. So that was one of the things that they did. But there seems to be more of a cultural influence upon Israel, as we'll see here as we get into go through Samson. Uh, with Samson. Uh, and that's typical that sometimes, you know, Satan uses outright persecution to uh, fight against church, but the most effective thing Satan does is worldly influence, right? And to play on our if remaining sin. That, that's always the most effective way. If that persecution as a rule is historically always strengthened the church, right? And Satan is no dummy. He knows that there's times for that, but he knows that at the end of the day what really uh, gets to us and what we struggle with the most, and that's something we see through the Philistines. As I said, I think last week, we have to re- remind ourselves that the book of Judges only covers about 120 to 140 years, and many of the judges are concurrent. They're just in different areas of Israel. Samson overlaps Samuel's life. Uh, in fact, uh, Samuel has begun his ministry long before Samson died. And uh, <clears throat> so... It's just, remember, 40 years from the time of Samson's birth until the Philistines are going to be broken. So at, at the earliest, that means 40 years from the birth of Samson to when David probably killed Goliath, the beginning of the uh, end of the Philistines, or perhaps even to the 
the beginning of David's reign. So all this takes place in a very short time, and those times we lose track of that because you got judges, then you go into Ruth for a little bit, then you go into First Samuel. So you think, well, this is just generations apart, but really, it's not. <clears throat> Notice also that God is, uh, as I said before, the stage where Israel calls out for Yahweh's help. In fact, in uh, chapter 15 and verse 11, uh, notice here what it says. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etim and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is it that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. Now we'll get to this later, but what, what Samson has kind of, he understands his life's mission is to, uh, you know, fight against the Philistines. But as he did that, that, that caused the Philistines to kind of take it out on somebody and take it out on the Israelites. And so what we find here is that Judah that has been one of the leaders in Israel, these men say, look, all you're doing is stirring up trouble for us. So you see the difference in attitude with what we've been reading all, all along is Israel, after being persecuted by these different groups, crying out to the Lord for deliverance, now they're not even doing that. They're saying, look, just let things alone. We're, we're happy to live as things are. We don't want there to be any God to send any Savior. And so you just kind of see this downward spiral of the people. And it's possible for us to be so happy and busy living like the world that anybody who would cause the, the world to have displeasure against us, to cause the difficulty, we, we really are, are upset when it happens. We're, we're, we're happy to let things go along. And, and we don't want God to stir the pot. We don't want to be a testimony. We don't want to incur the wrath of the world. And, uh, we have to be very careful about that. We see an example here. This is not what we've been saved for, to just keep our heads buried and make sure that nobody knows we're a Christian, so nobody makes fun of us, so we don't have to suffer for the Lord. But that's not why we've been saved. And so here, their Savior, Samson, creates an atmosphere of oppression, and they complain. Why are you doing this? We've had it so easy for so long that we... Uh, are running for persecution, and that's something I think we in our day really have to stop and think about the fact that, you know, we, we can lose sight of why we are here when things are too easy. <clears throat> and then as we said, when, what does God do when the people don't cry out for a savior? Well, he sends them one anyway. And that's really the theme of the Bible too, because we're all running from God. We hate God as Romans three makes it very clear there's none that seeks after God. If God did not come down to us, if he did not send Jesus into the world, uh, we would be lost, right? So he always takes the initiative. And that certainly should be no surprise that we see that's what's going on with him. For Samson, the enigma of Samson is that he is so riddled riddled with problems. Some people even kind of assume he couldn't possibly be a believer, even though it's very clear he was. Um, but that's the riddle of the enigma of Samson. Well, earlier we read that Manoah wanted to know the angel's name, 
but the angel basically said that, uh, why would you want to know that it's, it's too wonderful? Perhaps, you know, again, it's the Old Testament that they didn't, they weren't given all the light that we have today, but he's just saying that's not for you to know right now. It's too awesome for you. Someone said that request for duty is always granted, but curiosity is not always granted, and that's certainly true. He <clears throat> uh, says that, he goes on to say that uh, it wasn't until after Israel was cured of their idolatry that they were told of any angel's name. Now, I think this is probably the Lord Jesus Christ's theophany here with Noah and his wife. This is Yahweh, why Noah thought perhaps they were going to die. But when was uh, an angel, an angel's name, ever first revealed? Anybody know offhand? She just studied this. <clears throat> it was in the book of Daniel, where, uh, remember, it was at the end of the 70 years when Israel kind of was cured of their idolatry through the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the angel Gabriel is the one who comes to uh, Daniel and gives him the visions that he has in the last half of his book uh, is all about. And so this person says that uh, that's when the angels names are first given, and I guess that's true, not sure if that's particularly significant, but there is a theme of secrecy, as we mentioned, all in uh, Samson's accounts. People are constantly being left in the dark, there are riddles, people trying to find out the answers to the riddles. Uh, let's look at chapter 14, for instance, verse 4, his father and mother did not know what it, that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. He, he wanted a wife. He wanted a wife for the Philistines. And uh, the parents didn't want him to have a wife for the Philistines. Rightly so. And, and apparently, and again, this is the odd thing about Samson. He knows that he's supposed to fight against the Philistines. So he's going to pick on them by, by marrying one of them. And using that as a means to get down in there and to work with them, which, which, so he's disobeying God. It's clearly not God's will for him to be married some unbeliever. The parents question that, but they go along with them anyway. They're, they're weak. The parents go to some degree. But, but you see, they, they didn't know what Samson's doing. There, there's, a, there's secrecy here. Verse six. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Verse 9. He scraped it out, talking about some honey, some honey, uh, had, uh, bees had scraped some honey in the body of the dead carcass of the lion. And Samson comes by later on, he, he scrapes out some of that honey. Which again is breaking his vow because of Nazarite, he was not to touch any dead thing. And so, he got, he comes to his father's mother at verse 9 and they gave him some and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion because they, they would have known they shouldn't have eaten it and he shouldn't have eaten it. So, he's keeping this information back. It, it just, it's just all the way through this account, these, this kind of thing that's going on. You think about Delilah, right? That where is the source of your strength? And, uh, he kept giving them, you know, telling her lies, and, and she was trying to get it out of him, and of course eventually it leads to his downfall. 
so that it, it seems to be told in such the account of Samson in such a way uh, where he's doing his thing with no help from anybody else. No one understands what he's doing, and perhaps that's the reason for all that. Is that it's it's kind of like Jesus when he comes. He's he and the Father have communication. He has the full measure of the Holy Spirit. He knows what it's doing, but Israel by and large really does don't understand what what Jesus is doing. They don't understand his message. His message has been hidden from them. Remember the parables. Uh, Jesus says, Unto you, a few, it has been given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, but by the rest of these has not been given. And so you kind of see a parallel there, isn't it? You want to make too much of it, but perhaps that is why. We just see, as we've seen all the Testament that the Lord sometimes just manipulates the details of these people's lives in such a way to demonstrate uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in one way or another. <clears throat> so anyway, let's uh, read chapter 14 again because it's just the four chapters that deal with Samson are so interesting that you just don't, I don't want to just relate it. I want, to, I want us to be able to read it. So let's just read chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistine? But Samson said to his father, Get, get her for me, for she is right in my eye. Very clearly, <clears throat> Samson's problem, you know, his besetting sin, we might say, is women and the flesh. I mean, that's, that's his problem. And his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity from the Philistines. At that time, the Lord ruled over, the Philistines ruled over Israel. It's not to say that the Lord told Samson to marry this woman, but this was how the Lord was going to use Samson uh, by letting him do his own thing. And I think we have to always be careful about understanding what was going on here. <clears throat> then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked to the woman, and she was right in his eyes. Let me just forward uh, this too. This this gives us kind of the the, the main miracles, or if you want to call that, the feats of Samson. There's the first one: he kills a lion with his bare hands. Next, he'll kill thirty Philistines for threatening his wife for his fiance. Then he'll catch three hundred foxes or jackals. They'll tie their tails together, put a torch uh, between in there, tie a torch in there. They're going to go and they'll burn down a lot of the crops of the Philistines. Then he's going to kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. He's going to carry the gate of the city of Gaza, perhaps miles away, when they try to ambush him. And then finally, he'll be pushing the supporting pillars down in the building that he's when he's been captured. He killed about three thousand Philistines. You kind of see a progression of his feet. <clears throat> but those are the things that we see in these four chapters. Right, so anyway, verse 10. And his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. 
for so the young men used to do. And soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 champions to be with him. And, uh, and really, but yeah, sorry, I misread that. 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, <coughs> Let me now put a riddle to you. And this is where he's beginning to stir up trouble. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast, if you find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes, which was a big thing back then to have that kind of uh, clothing. Um, but if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle, that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater comes something to eat, out of the strong comes something sweet. And of course, we at this point understand what he's saying here. He's talking about the lion, that is a predator, an eater, <coughs> Woke up something to eat, which was the honey. So out of the strong comes something sweet. And remember that Hebrew poetry that we talked about. That a couplet usually that uh, it says the same thing but two different ways. They don't have to rhyme. It's about uh, the, 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 what it's saying. You see a good example of it. <clears throat> and in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, "Entice your husband and tell us what the riddle is." So you. You said something very similar is going to happen with Delilah later on. And they, and they threaten her, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? So Samson's wife wept over him and said, Now remember, they, they are betrothed. They're, they're at the, 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 probably the week of the feast that it hasn't been consummated yet. But they're considered husband and wife. That's why they're using this terminology. So she weeps over and says, Only you hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not <clears throat> told my father or mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before. Like I wouldn't recommend that. It's necessarily a good marriage counseling uh, or anything, but that's what he said. He wept before, she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city came to him on the seventh day before the sun went down. So before the consummation of the marriage, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found my, my riddle. It's pretty obvious what he's referring to here. You've been, he knows right where they got the information, and he's not particularly happy about it. And so in verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, a city of the Philistines, and struck down 30 men of the Texas spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companions who had been his best man. So, there you see how, uh, you know, he got mad, so instead of sticking around for his honeymoon, he just goes on back to his parents' house because he was so upset with what they had done. That's uh, kind of the, that's the part of it again, as far as uh, reading the scriptures this week. Um, <clears throat> so, 
some see this in this chapter Samson's little ruse as you know the opportunity to pick a fight with Philistines. And I think to some degree, obviously, you know, it says that that's the case. But nothing in the whole account of Samson really seems to suggest that Samson's motivation was anything other than pleasing Samson. I mean, I think he he clearly understood who the people of the enemies of God's people were. Uh, we we understand that uh, you know he he's not completely just doing whatever he wants to do. He understands that the Philistines are the enemies of God, and again Hebrews eleven makes it very clear that he is living by faith in this to some degree. But it's clear too that Samson's also motivated by what he wants to do, what pleases him. I mean, later on, he's going to be involved with a prostitute, and then eventually Delilah, who's another, uh, you know, of the godly uh, people. So clearly, Samson's got his issues. And, uh, but with, uh, what we, we are in chapter 14 introduced to his strength. Now, I think it's important to understand that Samson probably, and I think very likely, did not look all that strong. But maybe he was didn't look weak. He might have been, you know, athletic looking. I don't think he looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something like that. <clears throat> and I think the reason is because it, it was a very obvious reason that they're, they're asking if Delilah, which we'll get to next week, find out what the source of his strength is. Boy, if someone's walking around all muscle-bound, you you would be amazed at some of the things he could do, but you would say, well, look how big he is, look how muscular he is, right? There's something about Samson that, that they don't understand it. Because it would say the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him and he's able to do these things. So I don't think it's... The idea isn't that Samson was just huge. You know, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to do what he did, I think it's important to understand, especially when we get to the Count of Delilah. <clears throat> Another thing here is you think about his parents and their inability to stop Samson from marrying this woman is we're reminded that one's home life, while tremendously influential, isn't determinative. In other words, just because you were raised in a godly home doesn't mean you're going to be godly, obviously. And just because you were raised in a home that maybe you weren't raised all that well and there were things in, in your upbringing that are unfortunate and bad and you might have to live with the rest of your life, it doesn't mean you can't find grace and help in Christ and overcome those things. They're not determinative. They don't, you can't say this is who I am, this is how I was raised, and I can't ever do anything about it. And we see this, just, and we see it all through the scriptures, but here's just another example of this. You know, Samson's parents might have been weak in some ways, obviously they didn't, they, they kind of acquiesced to Samson here to do something he shouldn't have. But he obviously was raised to know the Lord, and yet he doesn't, you know, he was raised as a Nazarite, and he doesn't, uh, he kind of turns his back on some of that to a degree. And so we just got to remember that you can't be blaming your parents or anybody else when you uh, do that which is wrong. So uh, verse 11 tells us that Samson sees them as taking advantage of his hospitality.
principality. And so he forms a riddle to get his money back. Um, the, the men of, at his wedding. And uh, he does seem to be looking for ways to fight against them. And so in verse 19 we learn that the Holy Spirit has given credit for his deeds. As I said. And that's what we have to always remember. And that's what I think one thing we can get from this. Is that our strength does not lie in our physical strength, our health, our knowledge, our, uh, you know, whatever gifts we might have, those are things the Lord uses to tackle us. But ultimately, the strength, our strength is the Holy Spirit using us. We talked about this, you know, of men who are not necessarily gifted speakers yet have done some great things in the kingdom of God because when the Holy Spirit accompanies the, the word of God, that, you know, Jonathan Edwards, if, you know, when he read like sinners in the hands of the ang- of an angry God, uh, read it, and he read it dryly. Jonathan Edwards was not a public speaker in that sense. He, he would read his sermons, and he would look down, read it, his sermons, and yet God used those things to, to, to for marvelous revivals of it. So his strength is in the Holy Spirit. Our strength is in the Lord, right? And so that's a very encouraging thing. Certainly me as a pastor know that his word will not return void because it's his word and it's his work. And I am an instrument. And we're all instruments. And so we don't have to raise our children perfectly. We don't have to be the perfect wife or husband. We would want to be the best we can be. But we know that at the end of the day, it is to serve the Lord faithfully and he will do great things through us. And Samson, I think, gives us a great illustration of that. Because Samson was a mess. We haven't even really got into some of the worst of it. And yet, he is used of the Lord. And so it's an encouragement to us. We don't excuse our sin because we see some of our sin. Because we have more light, right? We have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Samson did not have those things. So we don't make excuses for ourselves as we read about these Old Testament things. But we are encouraged that the Lord uses this. We'll stop there today. Any uh, questions or comments? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the word and for the salvation that you have given us and the light. We pray for more understanding. Pray that we might be able to grow as we study your word and be better servants. Thankful, Lord, that you use even the weak. The Lord, as we're going to get to here soon, the first Corinthians, we are all weak.